Hey everybody, welcome back to Discipleship Podcasts put on by the Bend International Church of Christ. I'm Joey Hungerford and I'm excited that you've tuned in. It is now 2024 and we are going into season nine, talking about disciple making through the month of February and countercultural hot topic issues in the month of March. So please stick around for the three or four episodes on disciple making and not just skip forward to the hot topics of race gender, sexuality, politics coming up in March. I hope you stick around for all of it. Hey, if you haven't yet, please share with a friend, like this podcast, give it a good rating, maybe even a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Thank you so much for tuning in and have a blessed day. Jesus of John. And I will say, because I don't want to be accused of being president of the U.S. or Harvard, that there, there is a, a thing that came behind this, and there's a book called Jesus the Same that was published by DPI. That's really where I initially got the idea for this. And that book, if you, have, if you haven't seen it, it's a very good book to read, but there was a, a pastor over, I believe, in London about 100 years ago, and what he did was... He had a series of sermons, and every Sunday he would take one book of John, as best as I can recall, it's been like 10 years since I read it, but what he would do is he would pick one aspect of Jesus from the book of John, and he lectured on it. And apparently it was so popular, they put together this series, and then said, DPI published this book. So that's kind of where I got the initial thought. And then I also thought, when you, for my own purposes, I wanted to get you know, better off than where I was, and, one of the things you, you hear a lot of times when people first become disciples, when they first come out, they, they look to find out who, who Jesus is. What do we tell them? We tell them, well, you know, why don't you go read the book of John? It's a good place to start. And I, th- I think it is a good place to start. And the, the other thing is, the book of John is rather interesting because John actually states the purpose of writing the book. He states it in the book. Now, you, where else do you see that in the Bible? So if you look in John 20, verse 31, he gives three, three reasons why he wrote the book. He says that you might believe, the first one, that Jesus is the Messiah. The second one is Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God. And the third one is that by believing, you might have eternal life. So keeping those three things in mind, we'll go back at the end of this, and we'll see how, how, how these things relate to it. Now, when I started this, I was I thought, well, I'm going to have this. It's going to be about Jesus and his, you know, his humanity and stuff, and that worked for a while. But then I got up to some of the chapters, and they really didn't say much about his humanity. It was more about doctrine. So there's really going to be two things that I'm going to look at. It has to necessarily be a survey thing because I only have one Sunday. I don't have a whole series. But I'm going to get through the whole book of John, believe it or not. So it'll have some personality, some doctrine. Now, the other thing I want to say before we get into it is I've heard some apologetics lectures that come out. I think this is a very good, a very good thing to listen to or to, to keep in mind as we're going through this. And I've heard it said that you know, Jesus, there's, there's three things. There's one of three things that has to be true about Jesus. You know, people go out and they'll say, oh, Jesus was a, a, a good man. He was a teacher. He was a philosopher. You know, well, of course, we say he was much more than that. You know, he's the son of God, and he is God. But 
When you look at it, so the argument goes, one of three things must be true about Jesus. One is, he was either crazy. And when you really look at it, nobody really says he was crazy. No one in the Bible, no one to these days. But that could be, you know, somebody could be a crazy guy, you meet somebody, they make crazy statements. But nobody really says that of Jesus. The second one could be that he's a liar. And the third one is that what he claims to be is true. So, as we go through it, those second and third ones, we'll see that they actually kind of they play in interestingly because the Jews, well, spoiler alert here, but not too big of a spoiler, but the Jews claimed that he was a liar because he claimed to be the son of God, and he wasn't. So the question is whether he was or was not. So having said that, moving now to the chapters, uh, first, I want to go through this little scenario. Let's say that I came up to you as one of the listeners and I said, guess what? You have been entered into a contest and you won the grand prize. The grand prize that you have won is you get to have a concert of any living artist or group anywhere in the world and it includes first class accommodations for you and 20 of your closest friends and there and back and stay in there and you get to have a special dinner it can be anything that you want and it can be by any chef or chefs in the world because we'll take them there and as good as all this might be it's even better because it will also include enough money to pay all the taxes on this <laughs> and the taxes that would be on the money that you get to pay the taxes so it won't cost you anything you truly can enjoy it so if in fact you had won that I'm going to pick on, on somebody that I know that likes Taylor Swift. That's taking notes. It's Anthony. Right? Now, Anthony. <laughs> now, if you, in fact, had won that, how would you feel? I'd be freaking out. Okay. Well, he'd be freaking out now. On the other hand, if you think about it, Jesus has given us a better gift better than what I just described, because let's take the gift I just said. If you didn't have ears, if you had no hearing, going to that concert would pretty much be worthless. If you didn't have sight, you could still go there, you could enjoy it, you could hear it, but you wouldn't be able to see it. And if you didn't have smell and taste, the dinner would be, you know, what would be the point of it? And if you didn't have a mind and you really couldn't appreciate it, you know, like, let's say your dog or something, you know, Maybe that dog, similar to something else. But if you didn't have that, you wouldn't really be able to appreciate what you've been given. And if you weren't alive, it wouldn't matter at all, right? Because you'd be dead. So these are all things that Jesus gave us. And that's, in, that's what John says. It, it, when you look at chapter 1, it says, in, it said, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In the beginning, the Word was with God. Through Him, all things were made. And nothing that was created was created without the Word. So what we learned in the first chapter is Jesus is the creator of everything. So everything good that we have is because Jesus and he created it. I think, you know, we know that, but it's, it's pretty easy to forget that. So it's kind of, that's why I was trying to make something, if you look at it, a really good gift and see how good, how happy you'd be, ecstatic about it. But how often are we ecstatic about what we've been given? We tend to neglect it. 
The second chapter of John, and so I'm just picking certain things up. The second chapter of John is his first miracle. Now this one, when you think about it, you say, okay, Jesus could do any miracle he wanted. But what's his first miracle? What did he choose as his first miracle? He chose to make water into wine. I would argue that or suggest that one of the things that this shows uh, is that Jesus liked to have a good time and he wants us to have a good time and he was a fun kind of a guy. Because look, he made water into wine. And, and it's not just that he made water into wine, but what does, the, what does the Bible tell us? That it was at a wedding feast and they came up and at the end of the feast, they're sitting around and they said, oh, they're out of wine. So his, his mother comes and says, do whatever he says, and he, he tells him to fill up these jars. Well, how much wine did he make? There were six of these big ceremonial washing things that hold 12 gallons. So he made 72 gallons of wine. And what kind of wine did he make? You know, they take some to the, to the guy that's in charge of the feast. He says, you know, you, you really screwed up here. You know, most everybody, they bring the best wine in the beginning and you save the worst for last. You've saved the best till now. So you make 72 gallons of wonderful wine. Okay? Now, I have a little personal interest in this one because when I was, well, first of all, I mean, I like wine, but you know, there, there are people that, you know, that people don't like the taste of it. And some people say, you know, some people, they, they know people, like even say Donald Trump, he says he won't drink because his brother was an alcoholic, he died. So that, that's okay. And you know you don't have to like alcohol or anything, but it's not necessarily a problem to like it. And so, when I was ten, I remember my father telling me, "Drinking is a sin, but what's even worse is that if you drink on Sunday, God forbid that you drink any alcohol on Sunday." Now, even when I was ten, I went my little uh, with. A, a little meter of uh, baloney goes off. And I said, that can't be. I said, because if that's so, why did Jesus make water into wine if it's a sin to drink it, right? So I, I, I never bought that. And so one of the things I, the personal thing I have on this is, I think Jesus wanted people to have a good time. I think the other thing that this shows is that we have to be careful about making up rules that sound good to men. They sound like they have virtue, but they're not. And we're going to hear more of that in chapter 7. So that's a little personal thing. Now the other thing that comes up in chapter 2, it, and I'm going to argue that Jesus was not a wimp. And so why do I say that? Well, he's in the temple. What's he doing? He comes up and he's at this table, and what if I just turn this table and threw it up aside right now? You know, everybody would go like, what in the world are you doing? And that's exactly what Jesus did. But he didn't do it on one table. He did it on a whole bunch of tables where they're making money changers, where they're selling the pigeons, doing that stuff. And then they were told that, and then he also made a cord out of, he took cords and he made them into a whip and he drove the money changers out of the temple. And just think about that. This is, these people were making their livelihood from it. And that's money on the table. And he tur turned it up. They lost all their money, drives them out of the temple. I mean, one guy does all that? I mean, you know, he's not some pencil-neck little guy that's sitting around, you know, he's not a little wimp that, you know, 
you gotta say, now he may not be the Jack Reacher kind of a guy, you know, if you, anyone's watching that show, he goes up and kicks the car and gets the airbag to go off, so he's not, you know, he doesn't have to be that. But, the Bible tells him, you know, he'll have zeal for his father's house. But we, you hear that story, but do you ever really look at it and say, I mean, can you imagine if you were there and somebody did this? I mean, people would be, they'd go, be going crazy. You know, you'd think they'd get in fights or something. So he had some physical presence, obviously. Okay, in chapter 3, we go in there, and what I want to focus on here is that Nicodemus came to him, and he taught it. And so what's the significance here? Well, one of the things is that Nicodemus He's a very well-known teacher of the law. And he goes to Jesus, who's not schooled, and he wants to learn from Jesus. So it tells us that, you know, you know that'd be like saying, okay, you know, maybe the Supreme Court justice is going to go to somebody that's not a lawyer and start asking them questions about laws. I mean, it's, it's just something that is so... It's so extraordinary that oftentimes we pass over. And some of the things that happened here uh, are interesting as well. Because it goes in there. Now, John 3, that's where we, you get the famous John 3.16. You have John 3.18 later about Jesus being the, the only way to, Jesus, to heaven. But Jesus said, he's talking to Nicodemus. And this is where he said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, well. How can you be born again? You surely can't go back into the womb. And, and Jesus goes, well, you know, we talk about what we know. And he says, only, he says, I, and I might get confused between the, uh, I'm say this is kind of Jesus because it's first person, but Jesus says, we talk about what you know. Said, and and if, if I talk about what's these earthly things and you can't understand them, how are you ever going to understand heavenly things? So, he said, only Jesus came from heaven. And in this chapter, this is the first time where Jesus says it, he says Jesus must be lifted up. So this is obviously foreshadowing his death that he's going to have, but this is the first time it comes up. And one thing that is, I think, significant here is Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, the spirit gives birth to the spirit. So this will come into play later on. Jesus obviously also says that his purpose is to save the world and that whoever believes in him is not condemned. Those who do not are already condemned. And then Jesus says something very important here that we'll, that we'll see later on in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the book of John. He says, men love evil deeds so they don't want to come into the light. That's the main reason for unbelief. So that's a theme that we're going to see later. The next chapter in chapter 4 is when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman. And so what does this tell us? Well, one thing that it tells us is at the time, the Bible says that, that Jews did not associate with Samaritans. And we know from other books, other people that Jesus associated with, well, we're trying to stay at John here, so, but it's, it's a Samaritan, so he goes with somebody that Jews don't associate with, and a woman. Because at the time, men really weren't, weren't associating with the women. So he's... Jesus is not afraid to go and meet people at different levels, different areas of society. He mixes with people. He's not elitist. He's not, you know, he's not 
snooty, standoffish, or anything like that. He's willing to go around and to go against conventional custom and wisdom to go out and tell people. And when he's talking to the Samaritan woman, he talks about living water springs up to eternal life. And there's two things that he's, well, there's one thing he says that you know, the Father seeks worshipers in that worship, the true worth of worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And he also says the one thing, this is the first time in John where it says it, where he tells the woman, he says, I am the Messiah. So that's a declaration that he is the Messiah. Clearly says that. In the next chapter, in five, you see Jesus goes to the healing pool, and he, there's a man that has been, I believe he was lame from birth, but he couldn't get into the pool. So he comes in and he tells him to pick up his mat and walk. And, and then he now you know, is cured of this infirmity that he had from, from birth. And when did he do it? He did it on the Sabbath. Now, it may be the case that because Jesus was doing things for a long period of time, for years, it may have been he was healing people on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But the one that John chose was on Sunday. Okay? And there's a reason that he did it, because that's the reason they're choosing that is because people started to say, how can you do that? So Jesus said in chapter 5, because I received my authority from my Father God. So, and he goes on to say, I have authority to give eternal life and will judge those who do not believe. So my works, Jesus said plainly, he said, my works are the works of my Father, who is God. That's what he's claiming. And he says that the scriptures testify about me, but people refuse to believe. Again, hitting on what the unbelief is going to be. In the sixth chapter, you have a fairly famous miracle, which is when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now this, this miracle, it has sort of a dual purpose. So number one, it shows that he's able to feed the 5,000, and I, I should correct that, it's 5,000 people, but I think that the Bible says 5,000 men, so there would actually be higher than 5,000, because there'd be women and children and other people that would be there. But he feeds the 5,000, the 5, and it's a wonderful miracle. There's never been anything like that. Okay? Then later on that night, he goes out, and this is when the disciples are going across the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus comes out and he walks in the water, and then he's able to control that, and the boat automatically gets to the other side. So he has control over the physical universe, the physical reality. It shows that's his godly powers. But later on, then when he starts talking to the people, then he says, you know, this is, when they're looking for him, he says, well, look, you're coming and looking for me. The reason you're coming to look for me is because you got fed. You got to eat your fill. Stop working for food that, that only feeds the flesh. Work for something that feeds the spirit. And then this is when Jesus goes into the discussion where he says, I am the bread of life. You know, my, my body is real food. My blood is real, real drink. And he gets into this thing where, you know, people start to become confused. And the Bible says even some of the disciples were leaving because they said, this is a hard teaching. You know, you gotta eat, you gotta eat my body, you gotta drink my blood. But what he's referring to is that his body is the bread of life, meaning the bread that came from heaven. And what he's saying is that, and his word, he'll say later on, is that the words are the spirit, 
and that's what sustains you for eternal life. So it's kind of a dual purpose thing here where he's not only showing something he can do, but it has significance, although it really wasn't so understood at the time. Jesus also said in here, spirit gives life, to the spirit gives life, flesh counts for nothing. And he said his words are the spirit and they are life. Now, the next chapter, 7, is in the Festival of Tabernacles. And this is where Jesus has uh, some comments for the people that, that weren't uh, thinking much of his miracles on Sunday. He's going, and he's going out there, and the Pharisees and the leaders are criticizing him. And he goes, well, what are you talking about? I mean, when you think about it, he goes, you're criticizing me for healing somebody on Sunday. Said, what are you, you know, what are you thinking? Said, according to you, you try to keep Moses' law, and so if somebody has to be circumcised on the seventh day for the Sabbath, you do it. So you keep that law, and that you say that was given to you by Moses, but it really wasn't even given to you by Moses because it was given to you by the patriarchs, not even Moses. And you're keeping that law, but yet you say it's wrong. For me to heal somebody of their of their physical infirmity on a Sunday? It's like, what in the world are you thinking? This is where Jesus says, He says, stop, stop making incorrect judgments. Judge correctly. You know, look at what's important. Now it goes back to that second, the, the miracle, I mean the, the second miracle, you know, about we make these rules, you know, can't drink like our fathers, so can't drink with somebody, you know, stop judging incorrectly, you know, judge correctly. That was one thing that Jesus was trying to do. He was trying to make people think. And not just to look at things superficially, but looking at them from God's standpoint. Looking at them you know, from what the, what the real purpose was. Looking behind things. Not being superficial. Not being religious. But judging correctly. Jesus also here said he's going back to his father, which people were saying. I mean, he says this repeatedly. But then after this, the next chapter, Jesus is speaking to the people. And he says, I am the light of the world, the light of life. So I'm going away, away where I'm going, you can't come. So it's really he's talking about he's going to go back to heaven. And he says, you are from below. I, Jesus, am from above. So just imagine if you're sitting there and somebody was to make a claim like that to you. I mean, that's not something you hear every day. It's pretty remarkable. It's something you're going to remember. If you don't like him, you're going to hate him for saying it, right? <laughs> because that's, that's, a, that's a pretty, you know, Jesus is telling the truth. He goes on, he says, if you do not believe in me, if you don't believe who I'm who I claim to be, you'll die in your sins. He says, when I've been lifted up, then you'll know I claim to be who I am. Now this is what he, this is this is earlier. He says, once I've been lifted up, you'll know I'm going to claim to be who I. You know, you'll know I am who I am. This I think becomes important later on. We'll see why. But also in this chapter, there's the kind of famous verse. Jesus said, "If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." So he's always talking about these things. He's teaching. He's doing these things. And, and then, you know, he's already said this thing about, I'm from above, you're below. And then he comes out and you, and you look at it. 
it's kind of funny now, but you know, when you when you look at it, he's not pulling he's not pulling punches. Because what's he saying? He goes, if God were your father, you would love me. You don't love me, and you know why you don't love me? Because your father's the devil. <laughs> I mean, just imagine somebody telling you that. So this is not this is not sugarcoating it. You know, he's in there, and this is what he's talking to people about. <clears throat> and then, as if that isn't enough, this is the one I've got a little note here. Uh, well, I have two more things. So while Jesus is doing this, and, and you know, there are obviously some skeptics out there, some people don't want to hear this, but here's a very, I think, in a very important quote. He says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Okay, that's what Jesus said. And when you go through here, there's a lot of people, a lot of people heard Jesus. They, you know, there's all these people that are around there hearing these things. And he's challenging them. Prove me guilty of sin. And this is not when he's dying on the cross. This is early on. And there's a still a long period back of it. Can you imagine today if I was to tell, or if I was to tell you or if somebody would come up here and say, I don't sin. Just try to prove me guilty of sin any time in my life. I mean, you wouldn't do that, right? I mean, but you, maybe you'd be mad and be in that category of the first thing. But it would be foolish to do that. But Jesus said it. He had confidence. He knew who he was. He knew what he was doing. And nobody did prove him guilty of the sin, even though he challenged them. I mean, think about that today with the politicians. You know, they might do a lot of different things, but they don't, you know, I mean, can you imagine a politician today saying, See if you can prove me guilty of a sin. See if you can prove me guilty of lying. No. <laughs> I mean, you know, it would be a death sentence, right? Well, maybe not, because they all lie. But, you know, it, it just wouldn't happen. So, now we get to chapter 9, and this is where there's the second miracle that John talks about in, uh, that's done on a Sunday again. And this is the man that was born blind. So Jesus, Jesus heals him, and... Then they call, they, you know, he yelled them on a Sunday, and they call him in, and the, the, uh, the ruling council of Sanhedrin, they call him in, and they ask what happened, and then they, they you know, they ask him the story, and then they call his parents, they call him back, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's kind of funny, because he goes, oh, you want to become his disciples too? And, he, and it's, you know, no, they, they were obviously ticked off at the guy, his parents didn't want to say that he was, and they said, well, you, you go talk to him. But... The, uh, there, there's a one side thing is that the disciples did say, uh, you know, Lord, you know, was he, who was guilty, him or his parents for the sin? He says, neither. You know, he was born this way, so, the, so God's glory might be revealed for him. That's sort of a side thing. So somebody told me that was, when I was doing this, he said, watch out for your sides. You, you know, don't get too distracted, you know, on these little diversions. But that, that is what I'll have. I'll have a few more. But... Miracle is done on the, on the Sabbath. And now, this, when the guy comes back to Jesus, and he, he, Jesus is talking to him, there's a statement right here where Jesus says that he is, he tells a man, I am the Son of God. Not the Son of God, he's not the Son of Man. So he plainly states, I am the Son of Man. And this is where you get a double purpose here. Verse 19, Jesus says, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who, will, who see will become blind. So here you've got, the physical, you've got the physical thing of the miracle, but it also has a spiritual aspect of what he's saying about uh, where it's actually coming true. 
in the, uh, in the next chapter, chapter 10, is where Jesus talks about being the good shepherd. And in, in this chapter, he says that he has authority to lay down his life and then pick it up again. So this is a, this is a, a he's fore, foreshadowing what's going to happen. And he also says that I and the Father am one. And so this goes into the, the doctrine of the Trinity, but he's clearly stating that he's one with the Father. In chapter 11, even, we just had the foreshadowing of his power. Chapter 11 is when Lazarus dies. And so Jesus uh, waits. He knows he's sick, but he waits until he's dead, until he's been put in the tomb. So there's no question that he's dead because they're worried about the tomb stinking and all this stuff. And so he comes back, and what does Jesus do? Very significant. He raises him from the dead. When has this ever happened before? Now, it also is going to show what he's going to do on his own. But what other person ever living has done this? No one. When you think about it, nobody can do that. No one ever since has done that. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But also, this is a book tells you something about Jesus, probably more so, I would say, than probably a lot of other things, that shows his humanity. And the reason is, even though Jesus knew that he was going to bring Lazarus back from the dead, He's sitting there, and he became he became upset, you know, because he saw how how much it hurt Martha and Mary and the other people, and so Jesus knows what he's going to do, you know, he knows he's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead, but what does he do? Shortest book in the Bible, so this is the easy Bible memorization. Jesus wept. Now think about that. He's God. He knows he's going to bring him back, but he had enough empathy and compassion that he wept over the death of Lazarus because of what it did to those that he loved. Now, later in the chapter, and I, I do have to look at this one, we're gonna quote this one. This is verse 47, and this is the meaning of the Sanhedrin. So after Jesus, you know, Jesus has done some miracles up to this point, but this is the kicker. I mean, this is the big one. So they, man, the Sanhedrin comes together and goes, Holy cow! You know, everybody's going to believe in this guy. Look what he's doing. I mean, yeah, we got to do something here. So, and they, the comes of the Bible says, "What are we accomplishing if we go on like this with Jesus performing miraculous signs?" That's what they're talking about. Everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. So this, I think, goes to, when you look at that, what should they have really been thinking about? They should have been saying, <laughs> well, if everybody's believing, maybe we should believe. You know, maybe we should go out there and be looking, this is, this is from God. No, what they cared about more is they cared more about their personal situation, their personal life. They didn't really care about Jesus or about God, the Father or anything. They were all in about the flesh, about the here and now, about the money, the power, the prestige. Those are the things. Even when they can see everybody else doing it. And these are the people that are supposed to be the leaders. So, in verse 12, in chapter 12, 
Jesus is predicting his death, and that's also in this in this chapter is the the uh, foreshadowing again, or the, the showing what's going to happen. So we have we have Mary coming out and anointing him, anointing his feet with the oil. It's gonna, you know, again showing what's going to happen, and then we have Palm Sunday, and so. You have Jesus, he rides on a donkey, and you have all the people out there with the palm branches that come in there. And, you know, one thing that I think about when you look at this, so here's Jesus, and he knows what's going to happen, but you have all these people. He's coming in, and it's like this big triumph, triumphal thing. He's coming in, everyone's going to say, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They've got the palm branches, everybody's saying, you know, Man, you're great. You know, you're you're great. You know, we love you. You're, we want you to be a king. All this stuff. And just a couple days later, they're going to crucify him. And he knows all this. But you look at this, and how would you feel if you were in that situation? So, I mean, one, you could be, you know, for me, I'd probably be ticked off a little bit. But, you know, I don't, I don't think that's Jesus. He's probably got better personality than I do. But, but you know, he's probably sad. Because he's looking there and he's seeing all these people that are all doing, you know, they're, they're worship, in essence, trying to worship him, but they're all going to change. You know, because they're all going to let him be crucified. And so it says here that uh, Jesus is talking about his death. And he says, my heart is troubled. And think about that. I mean, even though he's God, he still sees all this. And... You know, it just can't be a very good feeling to realize that you're going to be betrayed and that all these people are saying this and the tide is going to turn. And for what for what reason, too? So, I think that's... Maybe that gives us a little glimpse into his humanity what he's suffering. Jesus comes out and he says, The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in the world will save it. And here's an interesting... This is one of my side things again. You, you get to figure out where it is. The Bible says, even though many believed in Jesus, including some leaders, they would not confess their faith in Jesus for fear of the Pharisees and being put out of the synagogue. So even though people believed in Jesus, they were more afraid of losing their, their position and things in this world than worried about spiritual world. Next chapter is we have Passover feast. This is where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He says, I'm doing this to make an example. He says, you must be servant. You must be servant like I'm being servant. And Jesus predicts his betrayal. Uh, he predicts two betrayals here. One of Judas, and then two that, Jesus, that uh, his, his buddy uh, Peter is going to deny three times before the cock crows. And so, here's Jesus. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. And what does he do? Now, if it was us, you know, if it was me or something, you know, you, you might not be very kind to that person. But what did Jesus do? He didn't embarrass Judas. He didn't shame him. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, uh, you know, he didn't, all he said was, whatever you're going to do, do quickly. And you'll see that people say, well, they thought he was going to go out and maybe do something that, you know, go buy something because he was a treasurer. 
He didn't say, even though he didn't say the person that dips the bread in there is going to betray me, that was just to a few of the disciples, but he didn't, he didn't embarrass him. You know, he was gracious. Jesus was gracious to him. Jesus also gracious to Peter. You know, Peter's in there. And he's, ah, you know, I'm never, I'm, and, you know, he's not going to do it. And Jesus says, you know, you're going to betray me three times. And I, I think he's probably with a sense of sadness that he says that. But again, he's not, you know, when you think about it, he's being very kind in the way that he's doing these things, even though they're pretty terrible. And the betrayals, you know, if we were to be subject to that kind of betrayal, I doubt that we would be as gracious as what Jesus was. So, during the Passover feast, this is where uh, Jesus also gave the new command to love one another. Then, after the chapter 14, talks about afterwards when he's saying, I am going to my Father's house to prepare a place for you, and I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, and then he goes on and says, that my words are not my own words, they're my Father's words. So, and then, fairly famous, if you love me, you will obey what I command. If you do, love, if you do not love me, you will not obey my teaching. And then he's talking for the first time about how he's going to send the Holy Spirit. In the next chapter, 15, we have the, the example of the vine and the branches, where Jesus says that he is the vine and nobody, nobody can do anything unless they stay in the vine. So we can't bear fruit by ourselves. We must bear fruit and remain in Jesus, the true vine. He says, if you obey my commands, this is the theme again, you will remain in my love, just as I, Jesus, have obeyed my Father's commands. So he's saying, I, I love the Father, I'm obeying his commands. If you love me, you gotta obey my commands just like I obey my father's commands. That's how we get to be one in spirit with God. And he goes on and says, My command is this love each other as I have loved you. Love each other. And he goes on to tell them that, by the way, uh, the world persecuted me, so don't be surprised, it's gonna persecute you as well. Stuff, sorry. The, uh, so then Jesus starts, and in chapter 16, he starts foretelling his persecution after his death. And he tells the disciples, I'm doing this. So again, he shows he has the knowledge. But he's saying he's doing this because he's concerned for them, because he's not going to be there to help them. So he's trying to help them by telling them what's going to come. He's telling them that I'm going to leave the world to go back and be with the Father. Once I'm gone, he says he's going to send the Holy Spirit. Now this is a, this is a you know, the Holy Spirit can be kind of a, uh, an issue, you know, how, how well is it explained? But right here, Jesus says, what will the Holy Spirit do? He says three things that the Holy Spirit is going to do. It's going to convict the world of guilt in three ways. One, in regard to sin, because men do not believe in Jesus. Two, in regard to righteousness, because Jesus is going to be with the Father. Three, in regard to judgment, because the prince of the world, i.e. Satan, now stands condemned. And that the Holy Spirit is going to guide disciples into the truth. Then Jesus, in the next chapter, Jesus does a prayer where he's talking about 
You know, he prays to the Father that, that he will protect the disciples from, the, from Satan. And it's also where he, he says, I, the prayer is not just for me, but for those in the future. And the comment about he wants us to be one. And so, a little bit interesting topic, maybe when I look on the other, but this is the, this is the verse where everybody always says that we as a church and the different denominations and everything, we should all try to be one. But, you know, uh, it might be worth doing a study to see, is that what it's talking about? Or is it more that he's talking about being one in the sense of being involved in the purpose of Jesus and the Father and doing their work? And that kind of unity, just as Jesus is one with the Father, that we be one with Jesus. Just saying, something to look at. In chapter 18, we have Jesus' betrayal. And here, uh, you know, so Judas betrays him. They come out, the, the soldiers come out, they get Jesus. And this is one where you gotta just look at it and say, well, Jesus is sitting there. And imagine for a moment <laughs> that you're Jesus. And here's Peter. He pulls out his sword and he whacks off the ear of the, uh, of the chief priest's servant. Now, I've thought about this stuff. First of all, I, well, I've never really swung a sword at anyone. But if you're swinging a sword at someone, if all you got is the ear, then I mean, it's, it's, I think that's God had a miss, right? Because it'd be pretty hard to just hit the ear versus hitting the head. I mean, look at, the, look at this, how big of an area you have. So all he did was knock off the ear. So I think that was an intervention that, that God had there to not let him kill the, uh, you know, Peter didn't hit him with the sword. So... Can you imagine this scene? And then Jesus is sitting there. <laughs> you know, I could just imagine going like, Peter, Peter, Peter. You know, what are you thinking? You know, it's like for my dogs, Alexander. I look at him, and he's sort of the bull in the china shop. <laughs> you know, he just, he, you know, he just, that's kind of what Peter's doing here. But, you know, you look at Peter, and, he, and after all this stuff Jesus has been telling him, and what's Peter doing? He's pulling out his sword. You know? I mean, can you believe it? So, I mean, Jesus, he's probably thinking, I mean, what would you be thinking? He's wondering, how dumb can you be? You know? Think what, what Jesus is there, but he's, he's look at this. Now, he never says that. He doesn't say anything about that, but it's just, you know, Peter... <laughs> Peter does that, and it, it's just, it's really, when you think about it, it's, it's just pretty amazing that it happens. And then right after this, this is like the, the litany of things for Jesus and his patience and the ability for him to put up with a lot. So he's putting up with Peter doing this. So then later on in the night, Peter's going to deny him three times. So he sees that happening. Peter, uh, Jesus is brought before the, the, the priest, and they ask him questions. You know, he gets slapped for, and he goes, why did you slap me? You know, if I'm answering these things, he said, well, is that his right to slap somebody for, 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 for no reason? And of course, then the, 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 Jewish, the Jewish council, they, they don't want to have anything to do with him, they take him to Pilate. And so he goes to Pilate, and Pilate is, questions Jesus. And here's something that I think this is a little thing that I, th I think is deliberate, that, that God put it in there, if you, the design. 
So what does, what does Pilate say? He said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, well, who told you that? How did, how did that come up? You know, he's asking, are you the king of the Jews? I mean, that's an odd thing for Pilate to say. Now remember that you know, nobody has kings here because this is, yeah, Caesar and everything, but Pilate says this. And so this is where Pilate starts to become concerned. You know, he's starting to think, well, who is he dealing with here? And he's starting to become concerned for himself. You know, even though he doesn't believe in Jesus, but the Bible says he's concerned. So then you have, at, you have out there where Pilate's looking for ways to get out of having to do anything with Jesus. So he gives them the, the chance between Barnabas and Jesus. You know, one of them can be pardoned, one is not. So here's Barnabas who was involved in an insurrection. And all the people, you know, they have all the people out here, now maybe, maybe not all the people, I don't know who all is out there, but they're all saying, give us Barnabas. And remember, it's just a couple days earlier. Remember, it's coming out Palm Sunday, Hosanna, Hosanna. I mean, what a betrayal. Think how Jesus must have felt at that point. I mean, and then now they're saying, no, give us this, this, uh, this guy over Jesus. And what is it that Jesus did? Well, okay, chapter 19, um, Jesus is flogged. And then Pilate says, and Jesus, Jesus said he must die. The Jews say Jesus must die because he claimed to be the son of God. That's what they said. So in essence, they're accusing Jesus of being a liar. And that it actually, in this case, is blasphemy. That's the sin that they allege. And this is the, the only thing that they could ever accuse him of when we were talking in the beginning. It's that he was the son of God. That's why he must die. And it said when, when, when that happened, the Bible says that it made Pilate even more afraid. Now, yeah, this guy's a pretty powerful guy. And he's sitting there, and he's going, oh, you know, I'm not so cool about this. Uh, probably a lot worse than that, but he's sitting there. And whatever we want to say about this, there, there's a lot I could say about it. But Pilate, listen to what he says. He says to the Jews, shall I crucify your king? Remember about the messianic thing about having the king on it? Shall I crucify your king? The Jews say, we have no king but Caesar. That's what they, they alleged. So here, the, the Jews are coming out there and saying, we don't have any king but Caesar. Uh, why would they ever be giving fealty to Caesar? So this is a complete abandonment of religion and of God. Then Jesus was crucified on the cross. And one of the things that comes up on the, when he's being crucified just before he dies, he goes and he looks, so here he is, and you know, he's in agony, he's been betrayed, he's had all these things happen, and yet he still has the, he still is concerned for others. So what, what's one of the last things that he does? He goes out there and he says, dear woman, this is to his mom, to his mother, he's concerned for his mother, he says, dear woman, Here's your son. And he's talking about John. And then to John, he said, here's your mother. So he's trying to make sure that despite all this is happening, he's concerned for his mother and for taking care of her. That's the compassion and the, the care that Jesus had. Then 
later in this chapter, this is just thrown in here, and I, I look at it, and I, I just see a, a theme in some of these things. But it says, Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple of Jesus, and Nicodemus took away his body and buried him. So this is Nicodemus that we saw from back in chapter 3, one of the teachers. But the fact that they did know a secret disciple, and they take, take it away. But they're not publicly doing it, but they still did it. Now, then in chapter 20, we have John and Peter find the empty tomb. And here, I think, is a very, very remarkable side uh, diversion again. But let me quote it. Verse 9. They still did not understand from scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. This is, what the, this is what John's saying. This is all the disciples. They've been living with Jesus for three years. He's already told them, I've got to be, be risen up. I've got to be doing all these things I've just, we've just gone through. And they've been living with him for three years. And they're sitting there. And here's an admission by John. We still didn't get it. And that's, that's kind of remarkable because, you know, here they are. And, they, and one can say, well, you know, why didn't they get it? And one might say, well, maybe they didn't get it because they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. We, we're, look at what this gives us. We weren't there, so we didn't get to see those things. And maybe it's a good thing we weren't there because maybe we would have been like the Jews and we would have been unbelievers. But here his own disciples don't get it. You know, they don't get it till later. And they, they do get it once Jesus has died and gone to heaven and the Holy Spirit comes out and convicts everybody and tells us what's going on. But it's fairly remarkable that they did not get it. Even though, and you've heard me say it several times, he said, what's going to happen? He's going to pick up his life. You know, and they've been around him. They've seen all these miracles. Can you, I mean, can you believe that? You've been there, you see, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He's told them what he's going to do. And yet, they don't get it. So, something to be thought of, I thought. Then now, now we see Jesus, is, and later in the chapter, we see Jesus makes three appearances in John. One is Mary Magdalene. And he says, go tell my brothers I am returning to my father and your father, and my God and your God. Then he appears to the group of disciples. He says, peace be with you. He breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. So now they've received it. And then three, to Thomas, the famous doubting Thomas one. And this is where, you know, he missed the first one. So... Some, you know, people that are kind of sny about, oh, you know, if you miss church or something, go, yeah, see what happened. You missed the church. You missed Jesus coming back. You know, and, and so he, here he comes back, and, and so he gets to put his fingers in the holes and stuff. And, and the famous thing, Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Then we come, then we come to, the, to chapter 21. And a lot happened in other Gospels and everything, but we're limiting this to John. We just wanted to kind of do a little survey of it. But in chapter 21, we have the Catch of Fish, where, you know, they're out there fishing for whatever reason. They're not catching anything, and they turn, put the net over, and Jesus tells them to put the net on the one side and they catch all these fish. They realize it's Jesus. So then they come back in, and uh, Jesus restores Peter, asks him the three questions about, do you love me? And it's somewhat interesting to me that you get to the end and so Jesus is telling Peter how he's going to die and how does this book end? Peter asks, Lord, what about him? And he's talking about John. So, you know, 
Uh, Peter, he's, you know, I'm sitting here and you just told me how I'm going to die. He goes, well, what about him? And what does Jesus say? If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And I just find it so interesting that that's kind of how this, how this book ends. And it's sort of a thing, you know, we can often look at things and say, what about somebody else? Or what about something else? But Jesus is saying, you know, you must follow me. It's a personal matter. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what anyone else does here. What Jesse does, Nadia does, Jan does, Joy does. You gotta make that decision and you gotta follow Jesus. And that's what he said. So, having gone through that survey, I have, and I know you're gonna say we're kind of going longer. Joey did give me a little extra time, but some concluding thoughts and remarks that I want to go over. So, first thing is the humanity, I said one of the things we want to show is the humanity of Jesus. And you can see that Jesus had emotions and he was subjected to a lot of things, even as we were going to do. He went through a lot of disappointments. And you know, he, he saw his betrayals, he saw these things, the people he was with, they betrayed him, they did all these things. But the one thing that I still focus on is Jesus wept. So, and remember, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't some Teflon God that had no feelings. He was a live human being, just like us. Second thing is, in the beginning, went through the three, the three stated purposes of the book of John. So how did he deal with these three? Well, the first one was Jesus was the Messiah. So, what does the Old Testament say about the Messiah? This is, I'm not going to go into it today because it's already long enough, but go out there sometime and look and see what does the Bible say about who the Messiah is, what the characteristics are. One of the things that you see about the Messiah is that the Messiah will have kingly aspects. Why do I think that's significant? I think it's significant because when, Jew, when Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And then when he puts over the cross that here is the king of the Jews, I think those are significant, and I think that they're there for a reason to prove that he, in fact, was the Messiah. Second one, Jesus is God, the Son of God. Well, this is what Jesus said, so... He clearly said it, and no one ever accused him of being a liar except for this claim that he's the Son of God. Remember, I told you that he made that challenge. If you accuse me of any sin, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? The only one that came to was this one, was that you are not the Son of God. But what we did see was he had all the power. He had the power to control everything. Who else has ever done that? He had all the knowledge. Nicodemus was coming to him. He was the one that was teaching Nicodemus about things. Who has ever done that in the past? And more importantly, Jesus said he had the power to lay down his life and give it back. He raised Lazarus from the dead, and then he laid his life down, and he came back and raised himself from the dead. So he certainly was a son of God. And if, you know, if you want to say somebody else is a son of God, fine, have him do that, and then we can talk about it. You know, proof is of the pudding, as they say. The third one is that John said one of his purposes was by believing you may have life in his name. And one of the things that Jesus said, I was pointing out earlier, he said, 
that that life is spirit, not flesh. So that's what eternal life is going to be. It's going to be spirit, not flesh. The flesh doesn't count for anything. It's all the spirit. And so if we love Jesus, we obey his commands. If we don't, we won't. Now, Joey, probably about six weeks ago, did a thing where we had, what's the gospel? We talked about what is the gospel? You know, what's the, we talked about there's the Nicene Creed, and what, what are these core beliefs? Well, I wrote down all these things that I pulled out of the book of John, okay? And I summarized them. Now, maybe I kind of knew where I wanted to go, but all of these are supported by what I've gone over today. And I just want to read you what I put the summary down that's all in the book of John. Every one of these is proven in, 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 somewhere in the text that we have. Jesus was with God in heaven. There is the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus led a sinless life and was crucified, dead and buried, and then he rose from the dead to save the world. Jesus can give eternal life, which is spirit, and judge those who don't believe. And Jesus is the only way to eternal life with his Father. Believers in Jesus are given the gift of the Holy Spirit to help guide them and remain in Jesus and his Father. Pretty good summary. You know, if you're going to say, well, you know, what's the Gospel of Jesus, Gospel of John? A lot of books, so you can't really necessarily get that thing in, but all this is supported from the book, from the book of John. Fourth thing I want to say was that you say that, and, and I think that's good for a creed, but then there's a corollary, and this has to do kind of like with works, but you know, we don't, you don't get your salvation from works. But what did Jesus say? He said, I was doing the work of my Father. And that's what his work was. Our, and it says, what our work is, is to believe in Jesus and then to do the works that he's doing. So what are, you know, our work is to believe in him, remain in him. So what are we supposed to be doing? Hold to his teachings, love one another, share the gospel of Jesus, and do not love the world, but love God's words. Especially, I do not love the world, because we saw how even there were secret disciples. So the fifth point is, why do people not believe in Jesus? And you're already going to know this by now, I've pointed it out enough. But I think the main reason what Jesus said is, people do not believe Jesus because they love the world and evil deeds. Okay, and so here, I want to quote, and I will quote, the Billy Joel song, only the good die young. And here's a verse from that song. They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. This is a lie. That's a lie from sin. That's it.